and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Cam, what are we looking at this week? We are going to look at the 1984 family film, Cloak and Dagger, directed by Richard Franklin. Not Fritz Lang. I made that mistake. <laughs> oh, there, there's a Fritz Lang film, isn't there, also called Cloak and Dagger? Yeah, I was on the IMDb page for that and got very confused. Well, it could have been uh, the Marvel teen show, too. That is true. Yeah. Now, our usual thing is to read the synopsis from letterbox.com. However, letterbox.com at the time of this recording is down for maintenance. So, we've had to improvise. Enemy spies got to Letterboxd. They want to take down the knock list. It's been compromised, everyone. <laughs> so we have, an, we have an alternative from IMDb. And then I also took a turn at writing my own cam. Oh, wow. Now, I, I can't say it's very short, but uh, it made me laugh whilst writing it. So I'll, I'll read it out anyway. But here's the IMDb very short two sentences, basically. Okay. Cloak and Dagger. A young boy and his imaginary friend end up on the run while in possession of a top secret spy gadget. Hmm. Oh, that's accurate. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't it doesn't tell you that too much about it? We like that. We usually give people credit for not saying too much. Now here's mine. Uh, are you sat comfortably? Do you have a drink? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Got some lunch. Good. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not a writer, people. You're going to tell by the end of this. <clears throat> Cloak and Dagger. 11-year-old Davy, still reeling from the loss of his mother and with his father busy with work, turns to the only way he knows how to deal with grief, spy stories. He then begins to see delusions of a spy named Jack Flack. However, this secret agent seems to have it in for young Davy and begins to advise him to do dangerous things. This escalates to the point where Flack begins to advise Davy to run into oncoming traffic and begin killing people. <laughs> simultaneously, I'm not done. Simultaneously, Davy's two friends, an annoying girl, and a Twinkie-obsessed 20-something that likes to hang out with much younger kids, offer him no respite. During all this, Davy is accidentally involved in a spy plot of his own, where he goes against every bit of advice a young child is given and does not report it to the proper authorities almost resulting in his demise and the loss of governmental secrets. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of true. It was the 80s, Scott. Those were the times. <laughs> um, okay. So what are your initial thoughts on this film? So this movie, I had only... I don't know that I'd seen the whole movie. I might have. I was very young, probably like seven or eight, maybe nine years old. And we had a summer cabin up north, up in the interior of BC, and I would go there every year. And I had a friend in a cabin next to us named Andrew, and I would go and hang out with him a lot while we were up there in usually the month of August. And I remember his family would always rent a ton of movies. That's where I saw my first Godzilla movie. I saw King Kong Lives. I saw, you know, a lot of monster and action kind of movies, more ones programmed for kids, but ones that nonetheless my parents weren't renting for me. And I remember one day going over and he had Cloak and Dagger. And 
I remember, you know, watching it. Now, I should say, when we watched it, we were also playing action figures at the same time, so our attention was divided. But I did remember very strongly the uh, the fate of um, Dabney Coleman's secret agent imaginary friend, like, very, very well. So that moment was still stuck with me. But I, other than that, I couldn't have told you a lot. But I did, you know, as a kid, think there was at least enough there that it entertained me. And so I was very intrigued to go back. And, uh, you know, <laughs> as a sort of mid-tier kids movie from the 80s, I actually think it's pretty fun. It's not E.T. <laughs> it's not, you know, the heights of what you can achieve in family entertainment. But I thought it was at least kind of goofy and fun. So I'll say that much so far. Yeah, I think goofy and fun is probably the best thing I can muster for this film. I I had no idea about this film. I feel like it's probably a, a film that you need to have grown up around to enjoy maybe or to have some sort of feeling towards because I went in completely blank and I came out completely blank. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not a 10-year-old kid. Uh, but as you say, for an 80s kids film, it, it, it did what it's supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. Like, it kind of checks all the boxes and has just enough weirdness and imagination to it that it doesn't feel insulting. Like, there's some kids' movies you watch from that era that are just boring to sit through. And I didn't find this movie boring. No, it certainly wasn't boring. There's a couple of twists and stuff that actually surprised me, which I'll we'll get to later. But... Um... Cam, do you have any information on this film, how it came to be? So this is not a movie that's heavily chronicled in terms of behind the scenes making of features. Um, You know, I went online and searched around. There's just not a lot on this movie written, but I've got some interesting uh, stuff nonetheless. So this movie was directed by Richard Franklin, um, who was, this was early in his career. He's not a guy who's done a lot. Um... He's done movies like Patrick, which is about a comatose uh, murderer. Um, he also did um, FX2, the sequel to the Brian Brown, Brian Dennehy film involving a special effects guy who tangles with criminals. Um, but where he broke through was in a movie, 1983, a sequel to Psycho called, of course, Psycho 2. And he teamed up with a writer named Tom Holland and they worked together. They were both big Hitchcock fans and ultimately... Psycho 2 is actually a really good sequel to Psycho. I mean, obviously it's not on par with the Hitchcock film, but it's actually one of the better sequels to a classic I could think of. It actually honors the original while still contributing to the mythology, and it's got a good performance by Anthony Perkins. So I would recommend Psycho 2. But ultimately, these two kind of go their split ways. Tom Holland is very notable because he goes on to write and direct the original Fright Night. Um, He co-writes and directs the original Child's Play. And he directs and writes Thinner, the Stephen King adaptation. So he kind of goes off into the horror realm. But these two, for one moment in time, were collaborating. And the script for this movie um, has sole credit to Tom Holland. But there is a side note that has a story credit um, to Cornell Woolrich, who wrote a story that inspired a 1949 film noir starring Bobby Driscoll. And if you don't know who Bobby Driscoll is, He's the kid who voiced Peter Pan in Disney's Peter Pan. And this movie in 1949 was inspired by a Cornell Woolrich story. And I guess there was enough there that this movie was deemed in some ways a remake of The Window. And so uh, 
Cornell Woolrich got credit for this film as well, even though I don't even think he may have been alive at this point. He was a very prolific writer and his work wound up being used in many ways. He um, wrote the material that inspired Rear Window. He also um, wrote the material that inspired the movie Original Sin with Antonio Banderas and Angelina Jolie. So you're saying that they wrote an original script, but then it was deemed to be somewhat connected to that, and that's why he got the credit. That's my guess. I couldn't find anything specific about them, you know, saying they wanted to remake The Window, but my guess is they both probably seen The Window, and there was enough there that maybe they even felt necessary to credit it. So I don't think when they, you know, pitched this project to the studio, they were like, we want to remake The Window. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea about this film, so. I actually tried to watch The Window because I thought that would be interesting for this movie review. But um, what happened was I could not get a copy for under 10 bucks because you had to buy it. You could not rent it. What about in French? (laughs) Don't give me trauma. (laughs) People, you can see our Hannah episode for context for that joke. Um, Now... In terms of the actual production, I don't have a lot of details, but I do have some quotes from the participants that I thought um, were noteworthy. Fairly recent quotes, too, looking back on this movie. Um, Dabney Coleman, who plays both Jack Flack and the father of Henry Thomas's character, uh, Hal Osborne, said, I thought it was a great idea. I didn't get along with the director. He's since passed on, but he was dot, dot, dot. Well, I won't say that. But it was great working with that little kid, Henry Thomas. What a great kid. And a great actor. I'll tell you, though, it's amazing how many people have come up to me and said something to me about that film. So it's definitely a movie that has had a legacy with people of my generation. I mean, the fact that Dabney Coleman is still getting asked about it. That's, you know, that's points in its favor, I suppose. I wonder what those people said about the film. (laughs) I think they were very kind. Come on. (laughs) Okay, I'm being mean. I don't know why. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Henry Thomas, the star of the movie, said... It's funny because that film has recently made a resurgence in the public mind. A lot of people have been talking to me about it. I saw an article where some guy had postulated that it was actually a prequel to Fight Club. Uh, how did that connection get made? I'm guessing imaginary friends. Okay. So Davey grew up to uh, hate his job and then uh, beat people up. That makes sense. I can see it. Um, Henry Thomas continues, nobody went and saw the movie when it came out in theaters. It was a dismal failure and it ended my three picture deal with Universal, but I'm glad people like it now. <laughs> he, he says from a cardboard box under a subway. He's actually doing very well these days, thankfully. I would hate if this was the way he went out. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't be a high note. Yeah. And uh, lastly, Tom Holland, the writer, um, gave an interview in 2011 talking about how it should be remade and credited its enduring appeal with the fact it was aired on cable over and over and over again. He called the film one of his favorites. See, actually, that is a very good point. I can see this film being remade now as a a kid's film and with today's sort of budgets and stuff like that and actually being quite successful. Yeah, Tom Holland really says this movie should be remade because there's the ideas there that are present and it feels somewhat original. I don't think anyone nowadays is ever going to reference the window, (laughs) but I do think this movie could work really well as a remake because I actually think it would open the door to franchises. I think you could do a TV show based on this movie as well. Yeah. Uh, You could have a a, live action. You could actually do it as a cartoon if you want to save some money. It would work that way too. Yeah. 
I mean, Disney Plus, come on, buy up the rights to Cloak and Dagger. They can't be that hard to get, you know, nailed down. I, I think they're too busy making Star Wars sequels at the moment. I like The Mandalorian. That's okay. Hmm. Um, so this movie, how did it do? Well, Henry Thomas kind of uh, gave you the uh, preview as to how this movie performed at the box office. It was released uh, August 10th, 1984. And the studio felt that it would be a good idea to open it against the Olympics. Now The, the Olympic, actual Olympics. The actual Olympics. The Olympics that year were in Los Angeles. And the studio Universal felt kids wouldn't care about the Olympics. So they thought, guys, now's the time. We're going to open Cloak and Dagger. Are they forgetting that the parents have to take them to the theater half the time? They didn't think that far ahead. Hmm. So how did it do? Well, so domestically it made $9.7 million. <sighs> and adjusted for inflation, that is $26 million. <laughs> what was the budget for it? The budget I could not find anywhere. I dug around, I looked everywhere. I could not find a budget for this movie. I'm going to guess it's not super high budget. It doesn't look that expensive. But... My guess is $9.7 million was not what they were looking for, especially starring Henry Thomas, the star of E.T., a movie that made like $300 million. And E.T. was two years before? Yeah. So he had the sort of name value at that point. Yeah. It just, I mean, well, as he said, it ended his contract with Universal. They were just like, this kid's done. That does seem to be the way they treat a lot of kid actors, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe back then, at least, anyway, with Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood is very fickle, especially when it comes to child stars. And so the year of 1984, when this movie's released, this is a gangbusters year. Just the top five alone. Um, so this is in uh, worldwide grosses. Because um, Cloak and Dagger never seemed to open internationally, it only played domestically. Um, its contribution to the worldwide you know, top 200 is obviously very low ranking because we don't have any international grosses. The movie didn't open internationally, it seems. And so number one was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Number two was Beverly Hills Cop. Number three was Ghostbusters. Number four was Gremlins. And number five was The Karate Kid. I mean, you're listing some of my favorite films of all time right there. So 84 was definitely a strong year for the cinema. People were turning up. It's just... Uh... No one knew this film existed by the sounds of it. Yeah, and I mean, 1984 was just a huge year. A lot of other stuff opened that year. Um, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Purple Rain with Prince. Um, it was just a big year. The Last Starfighter. This was a huge year. If you go through 1984, it may be the most prolific year of the decade. Well, I'm sitting here wearing a Purple Rain t-shirt. So yeah, it's obviously done some sort of effect on me. Yeah, there you have it. And so some other movies that also did better than Cloak and Dagger that are noteworthy. Uh, at number 39, Muppets Take Manhattan, which co-starred Dabney Coleman. Great film. And at number 52, Top Secret, the spy spoof starring Val Kilmer. That is actually one I have seen. I'm, I'm looking forward to us going back to seeing again. I am too. I haven't seen it forever. And so Cloak and Dagger ultimately landed at number 81. And remember, this is just with domestic grosses on a worldwide chart. And it was, so, as I said, number 81, right between Terror in the Isles, and I'd never heard of Terror in the Isles, so I looked it up. It's a compilation movie that mashes together clips from genre films from the 30s to the 80s. So it's a lot of footage from 
horror and crime and sci-fi movies just cut all together. And that was something that people released? Yeah, and it did better than Cloak and Dagger. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being so mean to this film. Yeah. (sighs) And it just narrowly beat a movie called Country starring Jessica Lange. It was a drama. I've never heard of it and never seen it. Um, And one other movie on the chart that's notable, people may not have heard of it, but it is a spy film. Um, Cloak and Dagger did beat number 92, which was a movie called Little Drummer Girl starring Diane Keaton. It is an espionage-related film, so it's on our list to cover potentially one day, but I have nothing really to say about it. I've never seen it, and uh, I'd never really heard of it before I made our list for the podcast. Well, that is certainly something to look forward to. That's right. (laughs) I have no idea what it is. Coming soon! No one has ever heard of this movie or talked about it since 1984, but stay tuned, folks. We're going to tackle it. (laughs) So, do you have anything else in the background? No, that about sums it up. Um, I guess the one other thing of note to mention, this movie, it did have an Atari video game tie-in. So you have I wondered that. about that. Yeah, it was an actual Atari game. And um, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that later. But it's noteworthy. I'm sure if you go on eBay, you can find a Atari cartridge for Cloak & Dagger for... Ah, it can't be that much, right? Probably not, but... Um... This is part of Atari's sort of downward spiral because they had the E.T. crisis a couple of years before that. Of course, yeah. Another Henry Thomas debacle. That Not mm. the movie, but the video game, yeah. Because um, the E.T. game was notoriously bad. Was uh, yeah, They dumped it all in the desert and then it was found 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting too because this has to be in the final days, really, of Atari because the Nintendo Entertainment System comes out, I think, in 85. Yeah, that does sound right. I'm actually, I've actually got a documentary queued up on Netflix about all of that right now. So that's, uh, that's my viewing for this evening. Oh, very nice. And I mean, Nintendo raised the bar for what video gaming was from Atari. So I feel like Cloak & Dagger may have been their final hurrah. There were some other systems around at the same time. But yeah, I think this was Atari's last-ditch effort, unfortunately. Yeah, there was like ColecoVision. There was also the Commodore 64. There was a mm. few other um, platforms, but... Atari was the big one. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this film. I need to make a confession before I start tearing it to pieces. Sure. Until I read the credits, I thought he was called Jack Black. I did too. I kept listening as they kept throwing that name out. And I was like leaning forward in my chair going like, wait, did they say Black or Fleck? Or what did they say? At a certain point, I just looked on IMDb and saw it was Flack. And I was like, oh, that's not as funny. Yeah, it's not as funny. And half the things I wrote down were like Jack Black puns. Sure. So I've not, I've not got those to use anymore, folks. <laughs> Although this is not the greatest spy film in the world. It's well, definitely not a tribute. <laughs> I've seen worse. <laughs> okay, Cam. So this film, obviously I read through my synopsis that I made up earlier. But as you said, it, it's a kid's film. It's aimed at kids. And I'm probably treating it as a film that isn't. A kids film so looking at it through that lens i think it is a good film it, it would probably keep young kids entertained for an hour and 40 minutes oh i think so and i actually had a question in regards to the fact it's aimed towards kids it's actually very violent and as i was saying earlier it wasn't released internationally i'm curious do you think it would have played over on in your neck of the woods because i know that in britain there's a different attitude towards violence in movies than there is say in north america yeah that is something that definitely 
bumped with me looking at the i mean i couldn't find a rating for it afterwards which is actually now makes sense because it wasn't released here or no one tried to release it here mm-hmm. um i couldn't see this film getting a u rating which is sort of u for universal or pg which is the next one up which means you need to have parents with you right i just think it's far too violent you actually see blood gunshot wounds um i couldn't see any kids getting into this film if it came out here I mean, you have villains threatening to blow off a kid's kneecaps and then give him a gut shot. <laughs> yeah, I, it's pretty gruesome in that sense. Uh, that's something that sort of jarred me when I was watching the film. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of threats to this kid that are very violent. And then even there's a moment where a bad guy just shoots a rat. And you see this rat get a bullet hole blown in the side of it. And then it's just laying on the ground, like squeaking. And I was like, wow, this movie's playing for keeps. That rat almost, it doesn't explode, but like it, the bullet shot just kind of pop and like the, the squib does explode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not one of those fake TV gunshots where they just sort of cover it up with their hand and there's no blood and they fall down. Well, you look at a movie like The Dark Knight, which is rated PG-13, and how like there's more impact to the gunshots in this PG-rated family movie than there is in The Dark Knight. Yeah. It's it's an odd choice. I for a kids' film, that stands out along with a couple of other things that I'm sure we'll crack into. But in terms of uh, Henry Thomas's character Davy Osborne, who is our lead, mm-hmm. what did you think of his performance? I think Henry Thomas is really good in this movie. I think Dabney Coleman as his father, um, as and also as Jack uh, Flack, is really good as well. And I thought the two of them made a very believable father-son pairing. But I mean, yeah, getting back to Henry Thomas, it's not easy for a kid to lead a movie, to be the star of the movie and really carry the entire thing from beginning to end. You only see that very rarely with kids that can really pull it off. Like Dakota Fanning is a really good child actress, or was, I should say. Uh, Haley Joel Osment was very strong. And I think Henry Thomas is very strong because he never comes across as like whiny or as just like too loud and kind of obnoxious the way a lot of child performers can be when they aren't directed well. I think Richard Franklin directed this kid very well. And I think uh, Henry Thomas had a lot of ability himself to bring to the table. I mean, he'd worked with Spielberg on E.T. And I think he's a really good lead in this movie. Yeah, he's absolutely solid in that sense. In terms of the child actors in this film, I buy him. Right. I, I get, I mean, he's obviously going through a lot of stuff, which is kind of hinted at in the film, but not really the whole point of it. Yeah, like, I buy that the danger is real because of how Henry Thomas reacts to it moment to moment. Like, this movie could just feel really, like, bad and thrown together and corny, but I feel like you buy the danger because of how Henry Thomas reacts to everything. Yeah, there's a, he actually has a genuine sense of fear on his face. You think of some of the scenes, like, when they're, um, traveling down the, the riverboat mm-hmm. and he's like squirming around to get to the, 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 the couple, the McCready's uh, which we'll get to in a bit and um, yeah, you, you feel like he's actually fearing for his life trying to get away yeah, and that sells a lot of this movie because I mean I'm sure we'll go into it later but like some of the plotting of this movie is uh, well I like to think of it as being written to sort of be an imaginary kids adventure where the logic isn't necessarily there for adult viewers But as a kid who's like, say, 10 or 12 years old, this all makes complete sense. But I feel like, you know, Henry Thomas's performance paves all that over and kind of holds it together. Yeah, I think that's how I would sum it up. He 
as I said, obviously is troubled, but he seems to think on his feet and adapt quite quickly to situations, Mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously a nice spy trait that we look for here. But I think ultimately it is kind of let down by that story, as you mentioned. Well, this movie also feels somewhat modeled on North by Northwest. And obviously both Franklin and Holland were big fans of Hitchcock having, you know, made a sequel to Psycho. And so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, North by Northwest was sort of in mind when they made this, as well as a little bit of rear window with how the Henry Thomas character witnesses the murder that sort of starts the story going. Um, But, you know, throughout, Henry Thomas's character may be in more danger than Cary Grant ever is. (laughs) Or at least he shows that he's in danger. We, We remarked on the North by Northwest episode that he doesn't really ever show his hand. Cary Grant, I should say. But yeah, it does feel like there's a lot more stakes in this game. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, do more people die in this movie than in North by Northwest? Well, hang on, then let's do a body count. North yeah. by Northwest. You have the, the two people in the plane. Yep. Uh, which were the henchmen. Yep. There's... You've got like a couple people that fall off Mount Rushmore. I think there's two that fall off. So that would be four. Um, and then James Mason is arrested. So I think it's just the four. I don't think anyone else dies in that film. Um, whereas when you, oh, sorry, there's also the guy who gets stabbed at the um, at the UN. So that's a fifth. Okay, yeah, innocent bystander guy gets stabbed. This movie, you've got the three main kind of villains. You've got the old couple, so that's five already. Plus, you've got uh, Morris, the um, computer hacker friend of theirs. So that's six. Just running it through to think if we've missed anyone else. But yeah, I think you're right. Oh, there is. There's also the murder victim who kicks off the entire thing. So that's uh, seven. Oh, the guy falls down the... St- oh, the, uh, my, my favorite ragdoll down the stairs moment. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, I love that. I, I, in any film I see that in, I always smile. <laughs> the 80s were a great time for hurling dummies off cliffs and, you know, down staircases. It's, it's just a shame uh, Jason Bourne wasn't riding into the bottom. Oh, man. If Henry Thomas had jumped on that body and ridden it to the bottom... This movie would get a five out of five for me. Straight on the list. It's going in. <laughs> and the whole time he's falling down, you see him on the, bo- on the back of the body with Jack Flax sitting next to him, giving him advice as they plummet down. <laughs> this isn't how a spy would do it, Davey. <laughs> That's great. Oh, and do we count some of the body count from Jack Flax's little fantasy that opens the movie? Because that's uh, you know that also raises the body count. Well, it's only on-screen kills, so yeah, I suppose. So yeah. we're looking at what? He he kills the guard. Yep. And the second guard, or does he just sort of take that guy down? I think he just uh, kills one guard. So we're at eight now. Yeah, and then he kills the, um, the sheik guy, and then also the sheik's escort, the woman who gets shot in the chest. So, uh, yeah. So that's a nine ten person body count versus five correct (laughs) there you have it folks cloak and dagger is a more dangerous film than north by northwest it was the 80s a marvelous time that's right but i'm glad you mentioned that opening uh scene there because as i said i walked into this film with no prior knowledge of it and i just thought what is going on he lands with that um you know flag um parachute which is sort of invocative of the old Bond, uh, what film is it he does that in? Oh, that's The Spy Who Loved Me. The Spy Who Loved Me, thank you, Cam. Um, 
And you just think this is bizarre. He's taking these people down. I thought this was a kid's film. He's, he's, he's straight up murdering people, basically. Yeah, and I was noting off the top, because I didn't remember the connection between Dabney Coleman's um, spy character and the father character. I did not remember they were both played by the same actor. So in my head, I'm just like, wait, is this kid's fantasy hero Dabney Coleman? I really have questions about this. <laughs> it felt very like <laughs> View to a Kill Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, actually. That's a, yeah, good point. It did. I, I remember just sort of, I didn't read the IMDb before I went on this. I didn't read anything about it particularly. I remember just sort of seeing Jack Flack, thinking it was Jack Flack. And then, and then his dad turns up later on the film and just thinking, oh, right. Yeah. It's all in his head. I, I see. Right. Okay. Because I was thinking in my head as I'm watching this, if they remade this movie to be a film, not a TV show, you know that they'd be going after Dwayne Johnson to play that role. Yeah, that would be good casting. Or I suppose the, the newer version nowadays seems to be John Cena is the guy getting those roles now. Yeah, it would be one or the other. It would not be a Dabney Coleman type. Just because of the age? Well, I mean, let's not beat around the bush. Dabney Coleman does not look a, like a, uh, a secret agent in his prime. Yeah, you want the, uh, the Hobson Shaw look. Yeah, because Dabney Coleman was 52 at the time they shot this film, around that age. So, like, he's not that young a guy, and Dabney Coleman is not known for his, like, muscular physique. Although, to be fair, at this point, as you mentioned, you know, Bill Shatter was still beating up Klingons and getting away with it. Yeah, no kidding. And then also, I, I said Roger Moore, but also Sean Connery had come back the year before to reprise James Bond and Never Say Never Again, and he was getting up there as well. So there was a lot of, I guess, aging action heroes at this point in time. Plus, a lot of guys were still working, like Charles Bronson. Yeah, very true. Um, so what did you think of Daphne Coleman then as, as the spy slash dad? I thought Dabney Coleman as the dad was fantastic. And that is a character that as a kid, I would not have cared even the slightest amount about. But honestly, I thought his scenes with Henry Thomas were incredibly touching. <laughs> How did you feel about those? He was one of the most believable bits of the film. Yeah, like I totally bought him as this grieving widower who's trying to raise a young kid that is displaying potential issues. I mean, Henry Thomas is living in this imaginary world that's actually very violent and a little bit concerning. And you buy that Dabney Coleman registers this as potentially a problem. And he's not an aggressive dad. He's not like the unfeeling dad who just kind of, you know, is kind of a little bit aloof. He's actually very warm and welcoming. And you buy that this guy really loves his son and wants the best for him, but is almost out of his league as to what to do. Yeah, because you just think, you know, he's an Air Force guy. He's, you know, military trained. They could have just lent on the whole, oh, he's an uncaring military dad, that, that old trope. Or he's just obsessed with his job, that too. Yeah, exactly. But no, he gives Davy time to explain the story every time. He's, he's being a bit manic. He even lets Davy play his video game to try and prove his story. No, he doesn't. Yeah. He's giving Davy the space to try and deal with his problems and you know he actively seeks help for Davey books him with the appointment with the psychiatrist um it sounds like a pretty good dad in compared to like Eric Heller from Hannah no kidding I mean and there's even you know after Henry Thomas has said he's witnessed a murder but they can't find a body um you know the dad is still letting him try to give his side of the story to explain what happened he's not like 
you're grounded. <laughs> Which is what, what probably would have happened in my house. <laughs> or he just told him to go get dinner. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so, like, I thought Dabney Coleman was great as the father. So much so that I wished there was more scenes just with him and Henry Thomas that were like these domestic scenes. Um, I thought they just added a lot to the movie. But I thought Dabney Coleman as Jack Flack was also pretty fun. I mean, he's a character that's just all, all bravado and just posturing, but doesn't really have that much wisdom because he's also basically just the imaginary friend of a child. So the advice he can give is only what a child would say. I thought that was actually pretty fun. And I thought Dabney Coleman delivered his moments really well. Yeah, because ultimately he's a projection of, of Davy's psyche and what he's read about Jack in the past. Yeah, exactly. And I felt like he was spouting off the type of advice that a 12-year-old kid might give in regards to spycraft. Uh, one thing I did pick up on, which is kind of back to the, the dad character, but the, and, and I suppose his relationship with Davy, but did, have you ever seen the Black Mirror Bandersnatch episode on Netflix? I have not, no. I recommend you see it. If you haven't seen Black Mirror, everyone at home, go watch it. It's a great series. But um, I won't spoil anything, but there's a, in Bandersnatch, it's one of those choose your own adventure Netflix stories they're doing now. And there's a character who's designing a video game on, I think it's an Atari or a Commodore. So it's kind of an 80s feel to it. And he starts to have his own delusions and his dad doesn't believe him. And there's that whole like seeking help for the kid story. So I think that actually sort of takes a little bit from that. From so Bandersnatch. wait, should this episode of Black Mirror be giving credit to The Window, the 1949 film noir? I think it should. <laughs> Maybe Cornell, that's the remake. Maybe we got the remake and we didn't even know it. Cornell Woolrich, there's more riches coming to you. <laughs> His estate is very happy right now. That's right. Now, there was, there was a, a quote I wrote down, uh, and it is from Mr. Flack himself. Mm -hmm. And I have a question for you, Cam. Mr. Flack says, the first rule of espionage is to be true to your source. What's the second rule? Um, always have an exit strategy. Oh, you actually had a sensible answer for me. Oh, all right. Then. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting that. And the third one, Scott? is never let them see you bleed. <laughs> Are you secretly a spy, Cam? I'm actually just ripping off cue dialogue from The World Is Not Enough. Okay, I was trying to make you sound cool there, but okay. You go back to quotes. <laughs> I am more Dabney Coleman father than Dabney Coleman secret agent. <laughs> Knowing you for this amount of time, that makes sense. <laughs> I was curious though, watching the Dabney Coleman character, who is the primary spy character, at least in terms of what we think of as a movie spy, I couldn't help but wonder throughout, was this character based on actual spies or was he inspired by G.I. Joe? He's got that G.I. Joe look about him, for sure. He does. The beret and stuff. The weird, like, vinyl jacket. Yeah, that was an odd choice. That was. But just his the way he'll, he carries himself and a lot of this movie's obsession with firearms and everything... It felt much more inspired by the G.I. Joe cartoon, although I'm not even sure that was on the air at the time, but it definitely reminded me a lot of that G.I. Joe cartoon that I would see occasionally when I was a kid. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I would watch it at friend's house occasionally. Uh, that's definitely where I sat in my head, but then we never had G.I. Joe here at all, or this film. Right. I was going to add, I thought it was fun that in that intro, though, where 
Dabney Coleman's character is taking down all those guys, which is so reminiscent of one of the goofier Roger Moore films. The way the scene ends is him running away from like 20 sided dice. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That was that was so bizarre when I was watching that in the film. I had no idea it was coming. I know you'd forgotten, I imagine, as well. Oh, yeah. I did not remember that at all. I mean, I knew it was a fantasy. In fact, though, I thought it was a movie. When it opened, I thought that maybe Henry Thomas's character was watching a movie and seeing this. And then when the dice came rolling, I was like, wait, this isn't lining up as a movie. Oh, no, I thought it was part of the film. I thought, because I had no, no lead-in for this, I thought that it was like the kid character and the spy. Right. And I was like, why, the, why is that dice on my... Oh, I see. Yeah, I thought that was a uh, clever touch. And um, I know Henry Thomas was really into Dungeons and Dragons at the time. Um, William Forsythe, who played Morris the Computer Hacker, said he spent a lot of time playing D&D with Henry Thomas between scenes. Maybe this was a Henry Thomas touch. I mean, that certainly adds up to... I mean, why we have that character by uh, of Morris represented on screen, although it's probably a bit of a poor representation of people who play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, or video games, or work yeah. in electronic stores. It's it's like the whole like I could see someone in a boardroom saying, "Hey, what does someone look like who works in a video store?" Oh, no, he's got a neck beard. Oh, okay, yeah, and then that that was how the guy got designed. What do you make of that Morris character? Because he is a strange, strange character. I mean, he doesn't seem to care about running the store that he, I assume, runs. It's empty. I don't know. Uh, and he likes to have young kids hanging around. Again, questionable. And sending them um, out on missions to find Twinkies for him. Yeah. I mean, maybe kids were a bit more responsible in the 80s. But I, mean, I don't have kids myself. But I, I can't see sending my 10-year-old kid across town on the bus to hang out with some older dude. It's something that was so common in 80s movies, though, where these kids would just have, like, some older male, usually male, friend that they just went and hung out with during the day. Um, same thing happens in Last Action Hero, where, like, the young kid just goes and hangs out with this bordering on elderly movie theater owner. See, I could see there being some sort of a perk to hanging around a movie theater, but I don't know what those kids are really getting out of hanging around that board game store. Well, they had video games, so I guess they were getting exposure to video games. Yeah, I guess. And I mean, William Forsythe said that he really hurled himself into this role as Morris. Forsythe is an actor who works a lot. He's been in uh, The Rock. He played Nicolas Cage's boss or something like that. Um, he also um, showed up in a lot of the Rob Zombie films. And uh, he said he really wanted to create a character here. So he came in with very specific choices in terms of wardrobe and hair and everything. And he said the director didn't really care. <laughs> see, I, I said, as, as I alluded to before, I could see someone actually pay attention to designing that character. I just didn't know it was the actor himself. Yeah, it was really William Forsythe, you know, steering the car on which direction Morris wound up. And uh, I think he actually created a memorable enough figure because this character is killed pretty quickly into the movie, but he is memorable. And I mean, you don't see many children's movies nowadays where the kid spends a fair amount of time locked in the trunk with a corpse. And that's another callback to what we were talking about before with that sort of darker side of the film, people getting shot and stuff. The kid's sharing a, a boot or a trunk, sorry, for the North Americans, with a, a dead body of his friend. Multiple times. It happens like two or three times. And he doesn't even seem to particularly get spooked about it. No, it's actually kind of played for laughs initially. 
It's like Weekend at Bernie's over here. It also reminded me a lot of, you know, both the writer and director being Hitchcock fans. It reminded me of a scene in the movie Frenzy, um, Hitchcock's 1973, I think, um, suspense film, where a guy winds up in the back of a vehicle with a corpse where he has to get um, a ring, I think it is, off the corpse's finger, which would identify the corpse. And it's played as laughs as the body's kind of flopping all over the place. And I definitely thought of that scene from Frenzy quite a bit when I was watching Cloak and Dagger. It's certainly a strange choice, I would say, to have him with that body. Do you think that that would ever happen in any movie post the 80s? No way. Not unless it was a, you know, 15 or an 18. Yeah. Like, if it's an R-rated movie or maybe a very dark PG-13 movie aimed directly, you know, at an adult audience versus, like, kids, possibly. Mm. But even then, I don't know. Yeah. So, I did want to make a mention of the other child actor in the film, Mm -hmm. uh, the character of Kim. I didn't like her turn at all in this film particularly. Yeah, I mean, she's played by Christina uh, Nigra, or Nigra, um, and she's fine. Like, she, in my eyes, is what I expect more from a child actor of this time period specifically, Mm -hmm. where the delivery's kind of clunky, and it just kind of feels like a kid who's wandered onto the set. I didn't find her obnoxious or unlikable or grating the way I do some other kids in movies, but... She definitely felt a little more, you know, novice than Henry Thomas. Davy, <laughs> Davy. <sighs> yeah, I, I actually thought she. I made a note of this, but it sounded like she dubbed all of her lines again. It's quite possible. Who knows what was going on on set? I mean, child performers are sometimes tough to get performances out of. You know, live in a scene, there may have been some ADR going on there. I don't know. Um, I did appreciate, though, that she looked like a very normal kid. They both did. And I like that because a lot of movies would have kids that look kind of Hollywood. And I didn't think either of them looked that way. No, you're right on there. They look sort of as average kids would look. Yeah, and this movie's set in Texas. And it plays it much more just kind of a low-key sort of mundane setting. Like, it doesn't feel like these kids are in New York City or LA, or some kind of glitzy place. Like, it feels like a very suburban neighborhood. And when they go into the city, it's not, like, glamorous and exciting. It's very kind of presented matter-of-fact. And these kids feel like they belong in that world. It doesn't feel like two Hollywood kids wandering into a small town or whatever. No, and I'd say she's also kind of more of a conduit of what actual or how actual kids would react to the situation. Yeah, she goes home to see her mum... Um, she says about contacting the authorities, the actual sensible things that you should be doing that people tend to teach their kids. Plus, when she gets like captured, she seems more annoyed and just kind of thinks it's somewhat of a game versus Henry yeah, she, Thomas, who realizes it's not. Yeah, she doesn't see the actual inherent danger of what's going on. Yeah. So, like, I thought she was fine, but she is more of a plot device because, you know, she's typically used to be put into danger. And Henry Thomas, that's his motivation to, you know, to save her and save the day because she's kidnapped by the bad guys, which means he has to trade the video game. And then she has, is walking around with a bomb in her walkie-talkie. And so that becomes the ticking clock of the movie of Henry Thomas needing to get that walkie-talkie and save her. So in many ways, it's not the best plot mechanic really to have a 
child actor be your constant threat in that this is what's emphasizing the danger of the movie is that this kid could be killed at any moment. But it was the 80s. That seems to be our answer for a lot of the conundrums this movie is posing us. Yeah, it was the 80s. <laughs> uh, I did want to also pivot on to the McCready's, which are sort of our bigger bads, I guess, of the film. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, I, I write my notes on films as I'm sort of going through, sort of almost like a timeline of my thoughts. And at, at the 50-minute mark, I wrote down, uh, it took 50 minutes for anyone to think about calling the police. And then the next note was, this old couple are the first sensible people I've seen. And then, what the fuck? <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? Not at all. My favorite bit of the film was when she takes that glove off. I actually went like, what? At the screen. It got me, man. I was like, oh, Lord. So, Scott, did Cloak and Dagger have the most surprising twist of any movie we've covered so far in your eyes? Do you know what? Unfortunately, I think it might be a yes. <laughs> yeah, I did not see this one coming at all. It, it, it definitely beat me. <laughs> well, it kind of plays into what you expect um, because as a kid, you know, a lot of the danger in this movie is presented by Michael Murphy as this guy named Rice and his two goons. They all look like, not necessarily dangerous, but the idea of what a kid might be concerned about or scared of. Like they are, they come across as strangers and not people to be trusted. Versus the old couple falling to that gap for a child where children are kind of taught to respect older people more so and to trust older people more. So it's kind of fun when they pull the rug out from you and this elderly couple are the two biggest masterminds of the entire scheme. Yeah, I mean, as you say, kids are taught to go to, you know, police or older couples if they're in danger. Yeah. And you, you buy it because you're like, finally, some actual sensible people in this film. And that just get you, man. Oh, I still can't get over that twist. It, of a film that doesn't particularly aim for any lofty heights, this actually, like, I felt like it actually had a little bit of substance to it. And they are not nice people. I mean, they go up in a fiery inferno <laughs> at the end, and you are not feeling bad for them whatsoever. Oh, no, they're, they're, uh, they are pieces of trash by that point. And it's noteworthy that John McIntyre, who plays George, he played the sheriff in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So my guess is that's what, you know, grabbed the attention of Richard Franklin and Tom Holland. Uh, sounds about right, actually. And of course, the explosion did give us the one of the most amazing walkaway scenes in all of uh, cinema history. I mean, when Dabney Coleman walked out of that fire, it didn't look good, folks. But nonetheless, I was with it in spirit. I, I just wanted to, like, you know, do a fist pump. Exactly. Did you, did you catch the really weird... De Niro taxi reference. Um, oh, is there a taxi driver reference? Sort of. I mean, the, the restaurant that he goes to try and pick up that taxi. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt like, or maybe to me, it was felt like that diner that he hangs out with, with the other taxi drivers. And then that's kind of what it was from, you know, the, in the film. Yeah. And then with that weird um, funky bass line in the background for all of like one minute. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, film influences going on in this film. And given how violent it is, I wouldn't be surprised if Taxi Driver was a reference point for this children's film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it might be that I'm staring at a picture of Robert De Niro's face right now. 
but yeah, it definitely felt like they maybe watched that film too many times and that inspired that very weird scene. Did you catch that the first taxi driver he went to looking for help was Louis Anderson? Who? Louis Anderson is a comedian, pretty well known, maybe not on your side of the pond, um, but he's been around for years in North America. He had an animated kids show called, I think, Life with Louis or The Louis Show or something. And then he also um, had a live action show called The Louis Anderson Show for a little while too. Yeah, I, I felt like I sort of recognized that guy's face. I just figured he was sort of an actor that I'd seen in something at some point. That was his first film credit. So, yeah, this is the origin story for Louis Anderson. This is another example of old guys hanging out with kids. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> okay. But, you know, you touched on the taxi driver stuff, and I think it's really interesting to look at this movie also as, you know, uh, kind of a notch in the filmography of Tom Holland, because Tom Holland is someone who really does run with his influences, because... Yes, he does Psycho 2, which is a Hitchcock thing. But then he does a movie the next year after, um, after Cloak and Dagger called Fright Night, which he directs as well as writes. And I mean, I absolutely love the movie Fright Night. And it has a heavy rear window vibe. But it's also about a young guy who witnesses what he thinks is a murder through his window. And it turns out that his neighbor is a vampire. And so he seeks the help of a TV show host who you know, it's basically the equivalent of like the male version of Elvira kind of thing. He's kind of this mm -hmm. kooky old guy who's a horror TV host. And just the idea of a young kid running to a basically icon of a genre is very much baked into this movie. So in some ways, this movie does feel like kind of a dry run for what he would do, I think, more successfully in Fright Night. And I mean, ultimately, this all you know, came to a climax when he took on the role of Spider-Man. Obviously, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no information about Fright Night, so I had nothing to add to that. <laughs> Tom Holland is basically Benjamin Button. He's been getting younger and younger by the day, so that's how he is now the official Spider-Man of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It all makes sense. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, like, I find Tom Holland to be a really interesting voice in genre entertainment, so it is kind of a novelty, at least for me, to see him playing in the kids movie realm because he brings elements to it that really don't belong in a kid's film. And I kind of appreciate that. So I'm sitting here thinking about this film as a kid's film now, having spoken to you about it for a time. I just can't wrap my head around what they were thinking with all of these choices. I mean, we're taking the release date to one side about them coming out at the same time as the Olympics. That was obviously a blunder, but not necessarily by the choice of the director. Mm -hmm. But some of these other choices just seemed like they were trying to make an adult film. It definitely feels like adults who probably didn't have kids at the time making a children's movie. Yeah, I could see that. And that a lot of their influences coming from Hitchcock are a little more on the, uh, you know, a little bit on the darker side. Like Hitchcock has a very dark sense of humor. His movies tend to deal with murder or people being accused of crimes they didn't commit. These are kind of adult themes and it does feel like they were taking their influences and kind of applying them to a kid's formula. And I mean, I wonder how this movie would have played with teens versus like young kids. I think teens might have appreciated it more. Yeah, potentially. And you think now if they did make this again, none of these sort of darker elements would exist. Exactly. I mean, another element of this movie I think is really interesting to touch on is this movie's role in video game culture. Because 
so much of this movie is about this hunt for an Atari cartridge that has blueprints for an invisible bomber project. That strikes as a very uncanny resemblance to the X-Men Blackbird, I would say. It does, but I was then curious um, when the stealth bomber came into existence, and the first one was flown in 1989. So I'm guessing they were experimenting with this technology in 84, or this movie created the stealth bomber. So not only did this film go on to inspire a uh, Black Mirror episode, it also inspired a whole division of aircraft. Possibly. I mean, uh, Dabney Coleman's character did work for the Air Force, so, you know, there may have been things going on here, Scott. We're just, we're going through the looking glass. I mean, letterbox is down today. It's all a bit strange. Yeah. But getting back to what I was saying uh, just before the, the plane project and all that, I mean, this movie is really grappling with video game culture in a way that was fairly new at the time. And it's interesting to me that this movie comes out the same year as The Last Starfighter, which is also about a plot affected by a video game. In that case, it's a young dude who's playing a video game, a very outdated sort of flight simulator, but ultimately it draws the attention of extraterrestrials who come and recruit him to be a starfighter for them. And both that movie and this movie open in 84 and really do kick off acknowledgement of video games as a major part of children's entertainment and a commercial force. Well, where do Tron and War Games sit? chronologically from this film yeah so they're coming out just in the few years before because tron's in 82 and um and um war games is 83 so you really do see this ramping up of the effect of video games on culture and the fact you have two ones coming out in 84 shows that it's only increasing in the amount of films that are coming out or certainly it's becoming more transparent to executives on film boards and things like that Totally. And by the time 1989 rolls around, we're getting The Wizard, which is basically a 90-minute commercial for Nintendo. I haven't seen that film. Yeah, it's basically about um, Fred Savage as a kid who has um, possibly autism. I can't remember if they ever actually nailed that down, but he seemed to be on the spectrum, who they go on a road trip to go to the Nintendo Championships, where they will unveil the game that has never been seen before, Super Mario Brothers 3. Oh, and they actually use that as like a media tool for the game. Oh, yeah. That was the first time we'd seen footage of that game. And there's characters using the power glove in that movie. So like video game culture at that point is a big deal. But it does feel like there's this ramping up through the 80s of arcades and video games and consoles and all that sort of thing and how they relate to characters. And usually the heroes are playing video games quite a bit. I suppose that would try and uh, that's their attempt to plug into the current sort of wave of kids playing video games because they're the ones who go to the cinemas. I mean, it definitely grabbed me as a kid when I would tune into a movie and they were playing video games that I recognized. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. I think I probably missed this period of time because by the time I was attending the theater, it was 92, 93. Of course, yeah, yeah. But Mm -hmm. the 80s were a good time to be alive in terms of like children's toys because I was also making a note, Henry Thomas has the best toys in his movies because you look at E.T., and uh, he's got Star Wars action figures all over the place. And I remember as a kid watching that movie being like, oh, my God, he has Hammerhead. You know, like he just had all these Star Wars figures. And then in this movie, he's got tons of cool stuff, too. Henry Thomas signed on to projects where he got to work with really cool toy props. I wonder how much he took home. I would guess more than you'd think. There has to be a perk for someone of that age doing these films. Oh, yeah. Like, 
you know he was running around that set shooting people with that water gun filled with monster blood. That 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 use of the gun and it obviously the callback to it later, it did make me laugh because I just thought he's not he's just gonna assume that that gun is the blood gun. But then he yeah. actually goes and kills the guy. Yeah, Michael Murphy takes a shot right to the chest there and falls into the pond. Did you find him to be a threatening villain? No. He's <laughs> very milk toast, isn't he? You look at him and, and the other two, I think what are their names, Alvarez and Haverman. Yeah. Uh, of IMDb here. Um, I wrote down three of the most inept villains of all time. Uh, Haverman, played by Tim Rosovich, had me laughing so hard how he's this big, burly, threatening guy who's running around in sweatpants. <laughs> that outfit was hilarious. <laughs> and then you've got um, Davey stealing uh, Haverman's car but only driving away at like five miles per hour. And then these three are trying to chase it from behind, looking like he, they're being outpaced by this very slow moving car. I, I was like, come on guys, just run for the car. You'll be able to pull him out in no time. I did kind of like that though, because he drove like a kid. A lot of movies, the kid gets behind the wheel and suddenly it's like a stunt driver doing like crazy, like high speed, you know, driving down the street. Whereas I like that he was just banging into everything and, really awkward and lurching, you know, the car all over the place. But then that would make sense that they could catch up to him. I'm willing to overlook this. Okay. You are more forgiving of this film than I am. (laughs) I mean, there's a moment though with Alvarez when they're on the boats in the park that I was like, holy geez, like Alvarez gets up, pulls out a switchblade and lunges and like sinks it into the side of the ship and Henry Thomas just dodges it. And I'm like, this guy is trying to stab a child in a movie. <laughs> this is crazy. In broad daylight in front of a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I guess they you know, thought the old people would save him. But I don't think the old people cared that much. Not by the end, they didn't. No. Um, another touch on this movie that I thought was very interesting is when you look at the movie E.T., um, getting back to uh, Henry Thomas and the movies he does that have awesome toys, um, E.T., is really a metaphor for letting go of childhood. You know, when E.T. flies away at the end, that's sort of the moment of Elliot saying goodbye to his adolescence. And this movie really does take pages from that book in that the character of Jack Flack represents his childhood. And at the end, when Jack Flack takes those bullets from the Michael Murphy villain and actually dies, um, that is Henry Thomas saying goodbye to his childhood. He's saying, I don't want to play games anymore. Um, He's abandoning all of his, you know, toys and all that stuff and accepting the reality of the world. And so, like, how did you feel this metaphor worked in this film versus a classic like E.T., which obviously hit it out of the park? I don't think the metaphor landed as well as they'd like, but I did get what you're saying. But I think that's because I was sitting there looking at this film from sort of a a critique perspective. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think if you were going to a cinema, you know, with your kids in tow, obviously the kids wouldn't really get that side of it but the adults that's where that plot is generally aimed at i don't think unless you were paying a lot of attention you would have picked up on it i also think it's a little muddled because i understand what the movie is saying about henry thomas's character recognizing danger and that violence isn't fun but it's in a movie that is largely using violence to have fun yeah it wants to have its cake and eat it basically yeah so like i can appreciate that they tried to give it some subtext and that there's a journey that the character goes on, but I don't know that the movie necessarily supports it, especially when after that scene, after he said, you know, violence isn't fun and all that, 
that's before the old people go up in the huge explosion. Yes, that was the point I was going to lead to, was you could have landed on that last bit where he actually kills a guy and you know doing so makes him almost grow up a little bit and maybe deal with some of the issues he's been avoiding by looking at all this spy stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he goes and has a jolly on an airplane with his dad and, and blows up to, you know, old people. Well, and when he's on the plane, I can kind of buy that he's gone on a journey because I think the kid at this point is genuinely scared. And the way that Dabney Coleman's character is dealing with the situation, and I should say Dabney Coleman as the father, because the father winds up as the pilot who's going to escort these two criminals, you know, out of the country. Um, he is dealing with it very seriously. And I think we see that the way that Henry Thomas's character is interacting with Dabney Coleman, that the kid is not viewing this as a fun Scott, uh, spy caper. And when um, Dabney Coleman's lowering him out the window of the plane, the kid seems legitimately scared. And it's not a fun situation, especially when Henry Thomas almost gets run down by the plane wheels, which was a stunt I was very impressed by. But ultimately, like... The moment ends with Dabney Coleman walking very movie-like out of the explosion, which to me kind of reverts it back to a cartoon situation. Yeah, and almost says to Davy that he was right in believing his delusions. And I mean, Dabney Coleman as the father, I don't want to see that character die, but I feel like him dying kind of nails home the point about the reality of what violence actually, you know, basically the ramifications of what happens in real world violence. I mean, if this film was doing what it seemed to want to do, which is be an adult film, then I think that would have made a perfect ending, but they, they couldn't kill the, his only biological parent in this film. No, I think the audience walks out way happier with this ending. So I can't necessarily fault the filmmakers for wanting people to go out on a high. Yeah. I, I would, I would rather have the ending where he walks away and we get to talk about the, the terrible, like, CG of him walking away, I guess. Uh, it wouldn't have been CG. It would have been like a practical effect that they're using blue screen, I would guess, for. Okay, sure. It's a composite shot, yeah. I, I would much rather have that than this like haunting realism of this kid's life now. <laughs> it basically cuts to him in like a mental asylum at the end in a straitjacket. And uh, Kim's come to visit him or something like that. Davy! <laughs> And Jack Flack is sitting next to him being like, you're not crazy, Davy. You're not crazy, Davy. You're not crazy, Davy. <laughs> Gra- grab that pen and kill her. She's a spy. Yeah. <laughs> Time what? for your meds, Davy. <laughs> Why did Jack Flack want him to run into traffic? That, that moment made me just... Uh, I don't know why they chose to do it. Because logically, if you think about it and follow it through, Jack Flack is, is a figment of his subconscious. And therefore, is his subconscious trying to tell him to kill himself? Uh, I have no idea. That was bizarre. Yeah. I kind of get killing the guy because you can argue the self-defense. Yeah, sure. That part I will go along with because that kid's life was very, very, very in danger. Yeah. I mean, he, he maybe could have hid longer and got away with it, but they probably would have found him. So shooting the guy got him out of that scenario but he could have waited the extra five seconds to cross that street. And yet, would you argue that Jack Flack did give this kid good advice? Because the kid survives throughout the movie. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he pulls him out of the phone box. He pulls him out of the car. Uh, Yeah, I I suppose most of the advice is pretty solid. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the kid's instincts are pretty solid because obviously the characters are a reflection of his instincts. I actually think Henry Thomas's, you know, that character's most genius moment is when the old people get through security and the airport, you know, isn't going to let him through. And he yells mom and dad, which is the perfect kid tactic, kid strategy to get those two people hauled back. Which, as I alluded to earlier, the kid obviously thinks on his feet. That's, that's a clever move to pull. Yeah. Um, so you've got to give him credit there. But it, as I say, the, the running out into traffic is definitely a bit of a worry. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? I did just want to give sort of kudos to obviously the writer, Tom Holland, because we have uh, the detective character uh, and his name is Lieutenant Fleming. Right. Which I quite yeah. liked. Uh, obviously, that's just a nod to, I would assume it's a nod to Ian Fleming. It's the same spelling, and it's funny you bring that character up, because uh, Lieutenant Fleming was played by an actor named uh, Robert Dokey, and Robert Dokey um, played Sergeant Reed in all three RoboCop films. Oh. So he's an 80s icon right there. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, RoboCop, a movie not that much more violent than Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> what was the RoboCop rating? Oh, R. Hard R. Okay. My guess is it was probably NC-17 before some edits. Is that like the like an X rating, basically? Yeah. We actually had an X rating uh, in North America. Um, they retired it, sort of. Um, NC-17 was kind of the replacement, because NC-17 was viewed as a rating that you could give a movie that was still acceptable for the public to see it. Like, it wasn't like... Um, it didn't have kind of a salacious vibe to it it was presented as, well, this is a rating that you'd still be able to put into theaters and that adults would be able to go. The NC-17 just meant no C under 17. But ultimately, the NC-17 just became the same thing as an X, where the only movies that got NC-17s were viewed as kind of sleazy. Like um, Showgirls got an NC-17. See, I'm, I'm surprised Showgirls got an X rating, to be fair. Thinking about uh, it. I can well, kind of see it, I guess, like from the nudity side of things. But The X rating just became so tied to pornography that they looked at NC-17 as being more of a proper rating for mainstream entertainment. But after Showgirls came out and tanked super bad with an NC-17, um, they didn't really uh, use that rating again. And I just want to acknowledge that it's incredibly weird for us to be talking about NC-17 ratings and Showgirls in a podcast dedicated to Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is uh, worrying. <laughs> uh, probably telling of our thoughts on the film overall. No kidding. So uh, there you have it. There's a tangent I wouldn't have expected talking about this family film. <laughs> no, this spy film. We're straight on to Showgirls. There you go. Well, it is a wildly inappropriate family film. So <laughs> that is very true, actually. Yeah. But I will say, like, for all of my quibbles with it and how much fun we've had kind of poking holes in the movie... I did enjoy watching it, and it's a movie that I could say that had I paid attention more so when I was 10 or 12, I would have loved this movie to death. I feel like it's a perfect film for someone of that exact age that Davey is when you find one of those films that you will just watch on repeat for a while. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of movies you watch as a kid aren't that great. Um, you know, there are classics. You know, E.T., which we've referenced, is obviously a classic. Um, there are amazing movies. Obviously, a lot of the Disney stuff or the Pixar movies hold up incredibly well. But a lot of kids' entertainment is kids' entertainment. And a lot of the movies that I enjoyed as a kid, I can acknowledge as an adult, 
aren't really that great. And I feel the same way about Cloak and Dagger. It kind of falls into that Goonies camp where I'm like, as a kid, this is a blast. As an adult, it has some issues, but it's still pretty fun. We didn't really have the Goonies over here, but for some reason, my childhood seemed to have a lot of Adam Sandler films. Okay, yeah. Uh, And those films do not hold up now. What about Billy Madison? Because I feel like that's probably his best comedy. That's probably the closest to something I would go back and rewatch. But if you look at something like Little Nicky. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's painful. And, and apparently a 10, or not a 10-year-old me, probably like 14-year-old me thought that film was hilarious. Yeah, that was actually over here one of his first big disappointments. Um, because he'd had The Water Boy, which was a massive hit. And then Little Nicky was kind of a bomb. Mm. He rebounded, though, with uh, Big Daddy. And then he's been making the riches ever since. Hey, Uncut Gems is not a bad film. Great movie. Great movie. Another movie that's very strange to bring up in a podcast on Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> yeah, we are, t- we are going off on tangents. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll bring us back home, Cam. I think it's time for the question. What do you think? I think it's time. Okay, I will pose it to you. Cam, does Cloak and Dagger make the knock list? Only if this list is curated by 12-year-olds. Um, no, this movie does not make the knock list. I do hope somewhere along the way, though, we encounter a family spy film that I can give the go-ahead with because I would like to represent kind of all ages in the knock list, but I just don't think um, I just don't think Cloak and Dagger is a good enough film. I think it has fun elements, and I think, you know, kids of the right age would ha- really have a blast with it, but I don't think it's a movie that's held up that well um, from, you know, 1984 to 2020. And, uh, you know, I I just don't think its legacy is particularly strong. And I don't think there's enough there in terms of influence to say, you know, this movie needs to be inducted because of its influence on movie X and movie Y. Um, I just think it was a fun, you know, movie that obviously did not do well in theaters, but feels like the perfect movie to have a resurgence on cable television in the 80s and 90s. But I can acknowledge that it's not a movie that's an all-timer in any way, shape, or form. No, I as I said... I, this film didn't come over here, and for good reason, I imagine now. I can't see myself liking it other than maybe 10-year-old me. Mm-hmm. I wrote down on my notes, you know, knock list equals no. <laughs> I, I didn't need to debate any further than that in my head. I, as I agree with you as well. I want to have some kids' films in here, and I think there are other films on our list that will be better spy films altogether and also just better films Mm -hmm. so i think whilst this has some nice elements i i wouldn't show this to any 10 year olds i know right i am glad we covered it though it was a movie that i wasn't 100 percent sure of what we were going to get going back but when it was over i was definitely feeling um satisfied with kind of the experience of revisiting it and glad that we decided to cover it because i think the movie it's weird, right? It's a weird kids movie. And I think that type of movie gives us a lot to talk about. It does. And it also gives us sort of a baseline for other kids films going forward. Mm -hmm. Because now we've seen this very hard edged kids film, I will say. And you think of like the Spy Kids uh, franchise, for instance, they're a lot softer from my memory anyway. Yeah, to the best of my memory. I only saw the first one though. Yeah, I have seen all four of them, and they all do sort of follow in the same vein as the first one in terms of that lighter side of kids' films. And obviously, this knock list, as we've said before, is not just about how we feel about the film. It's about, like, spy films that we would say are the best spy films, the canon of spy films. Mm -hmm. And I do not want this on the canon. No. 
this was never a question mark for me when the movie ended. I was just like, well, no. But I'm, gl- I'm glad we revisited it. It had some interesting, you know, things it did. I, I did genuinely not see the uh, old couple surprise coming. It did actually make me, you know, react to the film. Uh, and, I, and it had some cool action bits and bobs. And I think it's an interesting, you know, uh, first early work for Tom Holland, who I think became a fairly interesting filmmaker. And he looks great in spandex. <laughs> Jeremy Renner is very jealous. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Okay, then. So it sounds like it's a no from you. It's a definite no for me, but not a mean-spirited no. Yeah, I'll agree with that sentiment. It's a no from me, not in a bad way. I enjoyed watching it the first time. I probably wouldn't recommend it to people, but I didn't hate the film. Yeah, it's a fun little trivial 80s movie that has some energy, some imagination, but it's not one that's timeless. No, no, not at all. But I think it is primed for a remake. We'll see if that happens. We may be covering the remake of Cloak and Dagger one day. Well then, so it's a no from Cam and a no from me. Cloak and Dagger is not making the knock list. But Cam, where can people find the knock list? Yes, you can find the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards. We'll have lists up there for the movies that made the knock list, um, the movies that didn't make the knock list, as well as just the overall picture of what we've covered entirely on the Spyhards podcast. So get on there. You can argue with us over what made the knock list, what didn't. And uh, I think it will have a lot of fun on there just talking about movies that I think people have some fairly strong opinions on. So letterbox.com slash spyhards. And there you have it. And with that revelation, the dossier on Cloak and Dagger is complete and filed as classified. Cam, what are we doing next week? We are headed back to James Bond land, baby. We're taking on the very first Sean Connery Bond film, Dr. No. This is one of the reasons why I upgraded to the Blu-ray set. I'm looking forward to seeing it in glorious HD. I watched it not too long ago on my 4K TV with the Blu-ray, and you can see the fibers of Sean Connery's suits. It's amazing. And there you have it, listeners. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Dr. No and let us know what you think. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. <laughs> <laughs>